If you have your Bibles, would you open up to Romans chapter 10? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us pray. Lord, I do, I pray that Israel would be saved. Lord, that they would come to have a hope in you and a salvation in you and put their whole trust in you, Lord. And I pray that they would realize that they cannot be saved by the law or by doing good works. And that they would realize that the law that they are so zealous for actually leads to you. And that they would see that you are the fulfillment of that law, Lord. And, Lord, I just ask that you would be their Savior and that you would guide them and direct them. And, Lord, I pray that they would not be ignorant of your righteousness and that they would be saved by a righteousness of faith that is in you. And, Lord, I pray that everyone that is here this morning, that they would know and understand that the law does point to you and it shows us that we are in need of a Savior and that you are our Savior. And, Lord, I pray that we all would see and understand that all of Scripture points to you. And Lord, I ask that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears and open up our hearts to your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would guide and direct Jackie and fill him with your spirit this morning, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that you would be glorified here this morning in everything that we do and that everything that we do would bring glory to your name. In your name I pray. Amen. have uh, <clears throat> before we before we get started one announcement uh, Marianne and John uh, Avery are preparing to leave this week and we had uh, uh, set up an opportunity for those who wanted to help support them on their trip if you got information or you'd like to be involved or you want more information Lori Lee is available after church to kind of uh, dial you guys in on what's going on with them as we uh, open up the word this morning and we take a look at Oh, I don't know, arguably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I think I say that like every week. I'm not sure. Uh, man, God's got just some incredible uh, nuggets for us. And it's important that as we work our way through and as we, as we uh, take this journey that we realize that Remember where we came from. We began talking about the principles of the righteousness of God. The whole book of Romans is about the righteousness of God. From beginning to end. First eight chapters deal with principles of His righteousness. Remember we began in the beginning, right? In the beginning of the book we looked and we saw the first principle is we're broken. We are sinners. We need righteousness in order to be right with God. First three chapters deal with that. But then we remember the miracle of justification, right? We pick up in chapter 3 through 5 that God has imputed His righteousness to us. Now that's going to be important as we look at Romans chapter 10. That it is Christ's righteousness that we have. Not our own. It's His. 
imputed to us, given to us by faith in His finished work. It's a miracle of justification that He has made us whole. Without Christ, you are broken. In Christ, we still act broken, right? That's the rest of the book. We get finished with chapter 5 and we come to the fact that we need righteousness imparted. We talked about sanctification, remember? Sanctification is Christ lives in us right now. So right now within us, we have the holiness of God inside of us. And He wants to effect change in our life by changing our desires. Not by an external list of do's and don'ts. You get what I'm saying? Christ in us. The hope of glory. Christ in us is directing us and, and leading us where He would have us to go. That's the beauty of, of sanctification. And we saw that as we closed out all the way to, to chapter 8. We saw we still struggle with our flesh. That's reality, right? The reality is we struggle in our flesh. But the power to overcome our flesh is Romans chapter 8. The power of the Holy Spirit that He has given into us. And then we come into 9. Now, we, we, we looked at a, a second part, if you will. You know, outlines are not divine. They're just how we try to keep track of what's going on. And I told you, we, we're leaving the principles of the righteousness of God. And we're going to talk about some of the problems of the righteousness of God. And, and there's, there's four things that we're going to touch on. The, the election of Israel. We did that. We went through Romans chapter 9. And we're going to look at the rejection, present day rejection of Israel, and the reception or the receiving of the Gentiles. And then we're going to look at Israel's restoration. All those in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So that's where we find ourselves when we're in the middle of of chapter 10. We're dealing with the rejection of Israel and the receiving by faith of the Gentiles and, and what separates the two. And that's the focus as, as Paul takes us into chapter 10. So we're looking now at, at Israel's present rejection and the Gentiles' reception. So in the first 13 verses, which, which Daniel just read to you, we see the nature of God's righteousness. And when we see the nature of God's righteousness, there's five things that we're going to pick out of it. First, we see the prayer of Paul. Then we see the problem with Israel. Then we see the, the purpose for which Jesus Christ has come, the principle of faith, and then the promise of salvation. Now, if you know anything about me, you know we're not going to get through all those. But the section, the pericope of Scripture, is from 1 to 13. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. We get four verses done today. But we'll get the rest done next week. But as we look, there's some vital things that we want to be able to take that we want to be able to lay hold of, that we want to be able to, to not just hear, not just say, yeah, that's cool, but to, to really apprehend, to really have be a part of us. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And there is so much stuff in verse 1 that... I I could have probably parked on it, but I'm not going to. The prayer of Paul is what we're looking at. So the first part, my heart's desire. He's saying my passion, my burden for my brethren. He's speaking of fervency here, right? He's speaking of the fact that, that he has within him this overwhelming desire to see the men and women who were responsible for putting him in prison, who were responsible for beating him with rods, that were responsible for the scourging and the stoning, the people that were responsible for so much of the heartache in his life. He's saying he has a fervent desire and a fervent prayer to see them saved. That's a, that is a harsh reality if we consider our attitude about those whom we may consider our enemies. Jesus told us, didn't he, to love your enemies. If you love people who love you, what is that? Anybody can do that. That's a Jackie paraphrase, but you look it up, it's there. 
Anybody can love the people who love you back. He says you love the people who hate you. Love the people who want to take you down, who want to destroy you. And I think about our own history as a, a nation. One of the amazing things historically for me uh, is when I look at the, the civil rights movement. And I see that the civil rights movement could have taken two paths. In fact, there were people on either side. One was a, a, a militant path, violent path. We're going to fight and get what we want. And the other path was nonviolent, loving path. And led by Dr. Martin Luther King, they accomplished something I can't imagine. I look at the old, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the old footage. And, and the, the police are beating them or turning dogs onto them. Almost, that was rough days. Some of us were were you know, young when that was going on. Some of us were nowhere close to being around when that was going on. But what we learn from it, hopefully, prayerfully, what we see from it is the words that Christ spoke all those many years earlier were true. He said, we effect change through love in the power of His Spirit rather than through might of arms. He says it another way. He says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. He said in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That there's a battlefield that we can't see, and Jesus told us, how to see things change. The reality is, I think, so often in our, in our world and around us, we, we don't really understand the need that people have to know that somebody loves them just like they are. Loves them too much to leave them that way. I'm not talking about sloppy agape. Don't go crazy on me, but... But he loves them. And that he said, they will know you are my disciples by watching how you love each other. That's how it's supposed to be. So when Paul says, my heart's desire, my great passion is to see the people who hate me come to faith in Christ. Man, that's an incredible statement. That's an incredible statement. In fact, when he uses the word prayer, it's the word deesis. If you're part of the school of ministry, you remember we talked about this on, uh, on Thursday night. It's a strong, passionate, personal need. He's not just saying some, some random flippant prayer. Strong, passionate, personal need. The Bible translates it most often as supplication. He is really fervent about seeing the people who hate him saved. And that's a part of Paul's prayer life. In the book of James, in James 5, 16 through 18, it says this, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you ever think about that? You know, sometimes the things that make us sick isn't from disease at all. Sometimes the things that make us sick is our own unconfessed sin. Confess that sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed for the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effective, fervent, the effective, passionate prayer of a righteous man. What makes us righteous? 
We're going to look at it today. It's not because of what we did or what we do or what we've done. It's because of who we know. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then His righteousness is upon you. And you are a righteous man or woman who is capable of an effective, fervent prayer that can change people's lives. And God is, is, is through the Apostle Paul asking us, Giving us that example in Romans 10. This is my passion. To pray for the people who hate me. He's praying on behalf of Israel. And he's praying for their salvation. I, I always, lately I've been talking a lot about Paul and, and, and trying to correlate it to what we see on the news today. you know, And it's not a stretch at all to realize that Paul... The apostle was just like one of those robed figures in Isis. He did the same stuff. He killed Christians. He separated families. He destroyed children. He caused people to blaspheme God. Read the list of things Paul said. That's who he was. When he got saved, that was a radical transformation, wasn't it? And when Paul looks at the radical transformation of his life and what God did in his life, all he can think is my whole nation is full of people like me. And if God did it for me, what's stopping him from doing it for anybody else? So he prayed. A lot of times people say that we all as believers know the answers to the tests. You know, we know how to give the right answer at the right time for, for you know, whatever different circumstances we might find ourselves in. <coughs> but do we have the reality of the answer? The reality of the answer, what happens if God's people pray? What happens if the average prayer of clergy wasn't two minutes a day. What happens if the average prayer of God's people wasn't less than that? What happens if we catch vision for what Paul said? More often when I see things on, on uh, uh, YouTube or Facebook or on the news, I think... Other things I'd like to do to those people. Seldom is what crosses my mind a deep, passionate love for them and a desire for their salvation. But that that's how we learn Christ, isn't it? Isn't that the way He is? He, he, uh, he provides for us this incredible example this desire for their salvation. Well, while we're considering it, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 7. We discussed this at school of ministry this last week, but I thought it was important, so I brought it out this morning. <clears throat> Paul writes to Timothy and says, Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, deesis, that's the same word, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for how many men? All men. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. That's to give us the ability to be who God's asking us to be. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Listen to this next phrase. Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. What is it that God's looking for from us for mankind. Well, listen to what Paul said. He says, Therefore I exhort you first of all, the most important thing, that you pray for everyone, everywhere, that they would be saved. Isn't, isn't Paul saying the same thing? I mean, he's, he's, he's narrowing his focus because he's speaking currently about Israel. But isn't that his focus? That we would, that we would pray. That we would pray. Kathy 
prayed for her sister for 10 years. And her sister got saved. Kathy prayed for me for God only knows how long. And God, she's still praying. Don't think she's done. <laughs> and, and God did a work. He did a miracle in our marriage and in our lives. When we pray, we are suiting up and showing up. Telling God that we trust Him. And we're looking to Him for His direction and guidance and leading. And God fixes our hearts. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, a parable He told the people, a parable that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. The call from the Lord is that we would recognize the importance that is being placed on on this idea here in verse 1, the prayer of Paul. Paul prayed for his people to be saved. But Scripture goes on for us and tells us next the problem of Israel. Let's take a look at verse 2 and 3. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. When Paul says, I bear them witness, literally what he's saying is, I have personal experience about what's happening with them. I have personal experience about what's going on with them. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. It says, Though... I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But the things that were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. Paul says, I was just like them. I bear them witness. I was like them, man. I I followed all the rules of religion. A lot of people still do that today. They still, their whole relationship is all built on the premise that I am following a set of rules of man's religion. And I think that that is me putting my faith in Christ. Look, if that's who I am, my faith is in me. In my ability to do what God has in His Word. And that's self-righteousness. That's not the righteousness which is of Christ. That's why Paul says this. why he says, I I bear them witness. I, I was like them. I know what it's like to have a false standard of righteousness. See, at one time, Paul had this long boast. There's other places, his boast goes longer than that. He has this long boast of all the things he did and all the ways he did them. And if you talk to people today and you say to them, how are you doing? How's your relationship with the Lord going? A lot of times, you get a similar litany. Well, you know, I've been doing this in Sunday school and I've been doing this Bible study and I've been reaching out in this way and I've been doing these things and that's cool. But, man, our our righteousness is in Christ, not in what I do. My ability to please Him is by faith. The Bible tells in the book of Hebrews, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Impossible. So if my faith is not in Him, if my faith is in me, I can't be pleasing to Him. If my faith is in Him, I am pleasing to Him. Even though I struggle in Romans 7, like Paul did. So when we look at the Scripture, we want to see this personal experience that Paul's talking about. There's three things, specific things, that we're going to pull out of these two verses. Look, they have a zeal for God. A passionate religion. They have a zeal for God, but not according 
to knowledge, not according to God's word. Think about it. You, do you see people today who have a passion for religion? Man, you see it all. If you ever get a chance to travel to Israel, or you ever get a chance to travel into the Middle East, you'll see a lot of it. You'll reach one of the five times in a day that the, that the prayer song goes off. And you'll see all those who are a part of Islam roll out their carpets, fall on their face immediately and begin to pray towards Mecca. That's a zeal, a passion for religion. It's the same passion that they have that drives them, some of them, to, to, to incredible acts of brutality. Just like it drove Paul to incredible acts of brutality, didn't it? Religion never sets anybody free. In fact, the word means to bind up. To tie you up. He said they have a zeal. But not according to knowledge. A passion. But they lack the epignosis. The full and complete knowledge of God. Of the Lord. In Acts 22.3, listen to what Paul says about himself. I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up at, in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Was passionate in his pursuit of God. And in his pursuit of God was all about the list of rules and regulations the law, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, how it should be done. So he was following those things, focusing on those things. But his idea in Paul's mind as he's speaking this in Romans 10, is if God has radically transformed me, simply by faith. I mean, just think how simply Paul was saved. By faith. Radically transformed. And he says, couldn't that happen for Israel? Couldn't that happen for them? But Romans, if you just look to the left from where you are in Romans 10, Romans 9, 30. We read this, speaking of the election of God and the reception of the gospel by the Gentiles and the rejection of Israel. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. It wasn't by what they did. It was by whom they trusted. Who they believed. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The rock is a person. The rock is Jesus Christ. They stumble over the concept of putting their faith in their Messiah. Because it's so much easier to put my faith in me. And that leads to the rejection. One of their problems, they have zeal. They have passion, they have religion, but they don't have a knowledge of God. They don't have a knowledge of His Word. Next we see that they are ignorant of God's righteousness and seek to establish their own. They're trying to have their own righteousness. They're ignorant. They're ignorant that submitting to God's righteousness means first and foremost receiving by faith alone the gift of Christ. For righteousness to everyone who believes. Look, Philippians 3.9. We were, we were just there a little while ago. Let's look at it again. It says, And to be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This is what Paul said. Once I was following the lists of do's and don'ts, just like Israel is. He said, but then I met Christ. I, I, I came to know Him. I put my faith in Him and I've been radically transformed. Ever since, things have been changed. But the Bible tells us here in Romans 10 that Israel 
is ignorant of God's righteousness. Somewhere along the way, as they studied scripture, they fell into the trap that they could fulfill that scripture on their own. And if it was too difficult to fulfill, they just made rules around it so that it could be, they could be uh, justified themselves by the effort that they had put in. Let me give you a prime example. In your Bibles, if we look at Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the, to the Pharisees. In uh, Mark 7 verse 6, it says, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they do worship me, teaching as teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah lays out the concept that this is the problem from way back. From way back, Isaiah is saying, look, you, you, you honor me with your lips, you say nice stuff. You, you, you say these things, but your heart is far from me. There can only be one primary, preeminent passion of your heart. And if we're honest, a lot of us struggle with that. A lot of times the primary passion of my heart is my kids or my wife or maybe your husband or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a Something else. But the place of primacy in our heart is for Christ. The place of primacy in our heart is for Christ. Everything else is second. I got no problem, no struggle at all showing that throughout Scripture. Right? Jesus said, unless. Unless your love for me so far exceeds your love for everything else that everything else looks like hate, you're not fit for the kingdom. He wants that place of primacy. Now, even as we discuss He wants that place of primacy, the the point, I think, of Scripture, the point of faith... The point in and through it all is then to take my heart and do whatever I can to give it to Him. Look, if we're honest, most of us struggle with that. So did Peter. You guys remember Peter? We've talked about it before. Peter and John. John, at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus came to Peter three times. He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Remember? He said, do you agapeo me? Do you agapeo me? Peter twice responded, I phileo you, Lord. I phileo. Do you love me with a self-sacrificing love? Are you willing to die for me, Peter? Because once upon a time you said you would die for me. So I got, Peter, I'm just asking you, will you die for me now? And Peter said, I'm your friend. As far as Peter could go. He said it twice. I'm your friend. Both times... Both times it was enough for Jesus. Both times Jesus said, then tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Jesus still empowered him for service right where he was. Because he's honest and he's opening his heart. Everything he has, he wants to give. And then the third time, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you phileo? Are you my friend? And the Bible says Peter was grieved in his heart that the Lord the third time came down to him. And Peter said, you know all things, Lord. You know I phileo you. So Jesus told him something. One day, Peter, you're going to agapeo me. He said it like this. When you were young, Peter, you went where you wanted. But when you're old... Men are going to take you to a place you don't want to go. And the scripture says this, he spoke of the way that Peter would die. How would Peter die one day? He would die for his faith in Christ. Something he was unwilling to do 
around a fire with a slave girl. But one day, as he continued to follow Christ, he would arrive. The Lord would lead him to that place. His spirit would empower him to be the man he wanted to be. And one day, he would have what he needed to be able to have self-sacrificing love. The premium primacy of passion in our heart, that's a place for Christ. Everything else is somewhere underneath that. And as we look at Romans chapter 10 and we look at the problem, the struggle the nation of Israel had is that wasn't, they didn't love Christ. Christ is Messiah, Mashiach Nagid, the promise that they were looking for, for their deliverance. They're saying, ah, I need Messiah, Messiah. Every sacrifice they brought was a story of Messiah. Every feast day that they celebrated was a story of Messiah. Everything in their lives was built around the idea of Messiah, but somehow they lost track of Him. And they replaced Him with a bunch of rules. And they thought that that would make up for the lack of passion and primacy in their love for Messiah. And when Messiah came, they find themselves in a place where they don't want Him. Romans chapter 10 tells us in verse 3, not only are they ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, but listen to the third thing, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Look, you can hear Paul's friends, the, the guys that he's talking to, cry out, wait a minute, what are you, 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 you're, you're, you're treating us wrong. This isn't accurate. It's precisely because of our effort to establish this righteousness in our lives. That is our submission to God. That's their argument. What else could submission to God's righteousness look like? If I'm submitting myself to God's righteousness, it would be a zeal to have a righteous life and live uh, according to God's commandments. That's what submission looks like. And they would say to, to Paul, what would you want us to do? Not care whether we're righteous or not? We are all broken. It is impossible for us to be righteous. The only way I can make myself righteous is to look at somebody else and say they're not as good as me. Isn't that what the nation of Israel was doing at the time of Christ? You know that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of a day when light would come to the Gentiles and the Gentiles would be saved. But at the time of Christ, the nation of Israel looked at Gentiles as fuel for hell. The Gentiles exist so that hell will be hot. Otherwise, there will be nothing to burn. That was the attitude. But the Word of God said that God was going to save them. That God was going to do something that they wouldn't believe. Which is true. They didn't believe it. They think, I don't need to submit to God's righteousness. I don't need to receive what Messiah is offering me. I have my own thing to show. I have my own righteousness to give. And the problem is, that's not just a problem for Israel. The problem is, that's a problem for a lot of believers. A lot of people who think, my righteousness is my ticket in. I'm a good person. I don't steal, I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't do all those things. I'm a, I'm a good person. Somewhere, they lost the true meaning of Scripture. When we go through the Old Testament on Wednesday night over and over and over again, we're pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ. See Christ in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He's everywhere in Leviticus. He's all over the Old Testament. All over the Old Testament. Somewhere in their pursuit of self-righteousness through the Word, they lost Him in it all. In fact, in 2 Timothy 
chapter 3. I think there's a clue to how we, how it, we are able to connect with the understanding of what the Bible teaches and submit to the righteousness of God. Look what it says, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 14. It says, but you, Paul speaking to Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and, be, and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Paul, talking to Timothy, said, Look, continue in the things that you learn. Now, what did he learn? The Bible tells in, in 1 Timothy that it was Lois and Eunice. His, his mother and grandmother who taught him faithfully the Old Testament. They taught him the scriptures. And he learned the scriptures in such a way that when Paul showed up to Lystra and preached Christ crucified, Timothy saw the light. Timothy is an example of a Jew coming to faith by having his heart prepared by the word of God, hearing the truth of the gospel, being able to put them together, and bam! Timothy becomes... A son of Paul. Led to the Lord through the work of Paul. Because of what Lois and Eunice had done. They had faithfully taught him the scripture. The same scripture that the other Jews were studying. But Timothy didn't trip. He didn't stumble over the stumbling stone of Messiah. Because his focus as he went through the Old Testament was Messiah. Don't you see? Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees, he said, You search the scriptures daily. For in them you think you have life, but it is these scriptures that speak of me. But they lost him. So they would not submit to the righteousness that is from God. So they would try to to design and define their own righteousness. The question is, the teachers... For the majority of the people in Israel, what were they teaching them that caused them to miss Christ? And when I think about that, I am afraid. What are we teaching? Are we teaching things that will cause our kids to miss Christ? Our kids will have good morals and they'll understand the morals of the story and they'll... They'll understand if I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do that, I'll be pleasing to God. I pray that's not what we're teaching. I pray what we're teaching is Christ all the way through. Everywhere we go, every scripture we open, everything that we look at, are we teaching the scriptures which are meant to make us wise for salvation? Through our faith in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. Is that what we teach? Because if that's what we teach when Christ is preached, they won't trip over the stone. They'll fall on the stone. Either the stone crushes a man or a man falls on the stone broken and realizes, I need him. I need Him. That's what Paul discovered. That's what Paul discovered in all his passion and all the stuff that he was doing when he met Jesus and Jesus spoke to him on that road. And not just because he saw Him. Every one of you who have come to faith in Christ have had an experience with Christ. Every single one of you at some point in your life saw the light. At some point, something that someone shared or opened of the Scripture spoke to your heart and it's no different than the light shining from heaven for Paul. You met Jesus. And you received Him by faith. And He made you righteous. But if we're making ourselves righteous, we are not submitting to the righteousness of God. Which brings us to the purpose of Jesus. The purpose of Jesus we see in Romans 10.4. But before we look at it, Let's look at a couple other scriptures just to remind us where we're coming from. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Let's talk about God's righteousness manifested as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. That is 
the purpose of Jesus. Think about it. God's righteousness manifested as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.21 But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, spoken of in the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God, which they are not submitting to, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Will Jesus save anyone who will call on His name? Romans 10 is clear. Whosoever calls shall be saved. There's no difference. But this righteousness comes by faith. Then we look at Philippians 3, 8 and 9. We've been there twice already. This is the third time. See, we should have it memorized now. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for the epigenosis, for the full and complete knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom... I have suffered the loss of all things. Literally, you can say, I have suffered gladly the loss of all things. I don't want all that stuff. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish so that I might gain Christ. Give it all for Him. And be found in Him, not with my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is... Through God, by faith. And then Romans 10.4 For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end. That word end is the word telios. It means the completion. Christ is the completion of the law for everyone who believes. Remember I told you, it's by faith we are made righteous. I told you justification was going to come around. The, the, the reason Israel is not saved, the reason people struggle in salvation, is they cling to their own uh, ability to be self-righteous or good enough in the, and of themselves. They trip over the rock of Jesus, who is the one who has completed the law for us. His completion of the law, His perfect life has made me righteous. It's His. My faith in His finished work. Done. Complete. He is the end of the law. He is the end of ritual. He is the end of religion. He is the end of it all. He has completed it all. So that by faith we can cling to Him. And He makes you right. That's how everybody gets saved. Including Israel. That's how everybody gets saved, including ISIS. That's how everybody gets saved, even that rude neighbor across the street. Or that crazy kid that's always speeding down the road. It could be, Noe. It could be. That's how they get saved, by faith, in His finished work. Listen, the reason that it's not submission to God and His righteousness, when we seek to justify ourselves by trying to obey God, even with God's help, is because it dishonors Christ as our righteousness. It is me saying, I got this. I don't need you for this. I can take care of this on my own. It dishonors the sacrifice that Christ has made. It says to God, My humble, spirit-empowered behavior will be the ground of my righteous standing before you. That's what we're saying to God. My humble, spirit-empowered behavior will be the ground of my righteous standing before you. And God says, uh, no, it won't. It won't be your standing with me. God says, I have assigned that glorious role to my son. He will be 
your righteousness. So God says, when I accept you, when I vindicate you, and I declare you righteous in my sight, I will only do so based on the grounds of the righteousness of my Son. The only way I will declare you righteous and vindicate you is on the grounds of my Son alone. His perfect divine righteousness is the only righteousness that will justify in the court of God. It's the only righteousness that will make things right. You shall obey me through faith. But your imperfect obedience will be the fruit of your justification, not the root. Jesus Christ has that honor. He is the root. Whatever we, however we live, whatever we do afterwards will be the fruit. But the root is Him. He is our righteousness. The Bible tells us that the law demands obedience in what you do. Christ demands faith in what He did. The rejection of Israel as a result of their inability to understand, to come to the rock, which is Christ, and fall upon Him broken and receive healing by His righteousness being imputed into their life. But rather they are struggling and fighting so that they might achieve their own righteousness. As we close out this morning, I just want to read Romans 3, starting at verse 21. And just here, Paul's talked about all this stuff before. Just hear what it is that Paul is saying. He says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the word of God, even the righteousness of God, which we must submit to, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is broken. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a substitute, by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, the righteousness, the only righteousness, that God will receive. The honor is Christ's. Because in His forbearance, His patience, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. That He might demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, so that He, God, might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that all the glory would go to God. So that all the glory would be His. Because Jesus is worthy of all the glory, of all the praise, of all the honor, of the primacy. In that place of passion in our heart. Look, Paul's message today is, man... There's no room for boasting. There's no room for bragging. There's no room for for pointing at someone else. All there's room for is men and women to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. To come to a relationship with God based on His finished work through faith by putting our trust in Him. It's so simple, people trip over it. Long time ago, Book of Numbers tells us that there was a judgment that came to Israel. As Moses was bringing the children of Israel through the wilderness, the Lord sent fiery serpents. And they were biting people, and people were dying. And the people said, Moses, pray! So Moses prayed. God said, Moses, take a 
bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Bronze is the is the 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 metal of judgment. The serpent is the sign of the curse. So the point of the bronze serpent on the pole is the curse being judged. And he said, take that and stick it so all the people can look to it. And then he said, whoever looks upon that bronze serpent will be saved. And how many people wouldn't look? How many people rolled on the ground in agony and pain and misery and unhappiness? And they said, it's got to be more to it than that. You've got to have somebody come over and put a tourniquet on my leg. And somebody got to suck the poison out. Everybody knows that's how you're supposed to do it. No, brother, all you got to do is look to the serpent on the pole. Look to where the curse was judged. And then Jesus said, If I am lifted up, just like that, I will draw all men to myself. For what purpose? They might be saved. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord is saved. And that's beautiful. That's why Paul seeing the simplicity, Paul seeing the power of transformation in his own life, that's why he wouldn't stop praying for him. And God don't want you to stop praying either. He don't want you to stop praying for that husband who won't come or doesn't believe or won't walk. He doesn't want you to stop praying for the wife who won't. He doesn't want you to stop praying for the child who's out there in the wind. He doesn't want you to stop praying for the one who has let you down a hundred times. Because He will never stop praying for you. The Bible says, He ever lives. How long does Jesus live? Forever? Oh, it's a long time, right? He ever lives to do what? Make intercession for you. He ever lives to pray for you. Pray. Watch what God will do if His people pray. For He is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that is working in us. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank You for the truth of Your Word, for what Your Word declares. That You indeed are able, God, able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. You are able to deliver us from our own brokenness. You're able to deliver us from our own struggle. You're able to deliver us as we, as we come to You with nothing to offer. We don't have anything in the basket. Our basket is full of Brokenness, broken lies, broken promises, lies, hurts, pains. But your word declares to us that you came to take all of that. None of that is for us to bear. You came and said, I want all your wrongs. I'll give you all my rights. And some people keep telling him, no. I, I can do it on my own. No, I'm going to do it this way. No, I'm going to do it another way. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. There's only one. Only one way. Only one righteousness. Only one way to receive that righteousness by faith in what Christ has done. It is our prayer that today Christ has been lifted up and whosoever will call upon His name shall be saved. Lord, as we just come before Your people, Your church, 
in an attitude of worship, Lord Jesus, praising your name, God, I pray as we as we close out in this last song, if if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, they don't gotta leave and stay in that state. Lord, I pray as prayer counselors are about the room and available for prayer that folks just come up and talk if there's prayers they need to pray or someone that's a lost cause God you are the God of lost causes Lord I pray if there are people struggling with prodigal children and people struggling in illness and people struggling in in attitudes God you want to set them free today For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. All the battles of our lives will not stop being fought. We will fight every day till we see Christ. But He is our strong tower. He is our fortress. He is our deliverer. And it is in Him we trust in Jesus name Amen